Doodah, neighbors. Maria, a little more subdued. Hey, everyone. It's Maria in Happy Valley. And Annika in Columbia. And we are here to talk to you about Bellingham, the city of subdued, whatever we decide to talk about. We want to know you, Bellingham, both the well-known and not so well-known. Um, we have quarantine co-hosts, as usual. Um, you know, I just got back from visiting my family in Vancouver, so I was so excited to see my baby again, her burrito. Aww. Annika, how's your baby? Well, there's now two babies. <gasps> two babies? How is that? Okay, listeners, this is breaking news right here on the podcast. Somehow, <laughs> Annika's babies have doubled. Annika, tell me more about it. Well, we we got a foster doggy that uh, we are strongly considering adopting. I didn't even know you were in the process of thinking about getting another dog. I always want another dog. How did you decide to become a foster mom to a dog? To a dog. Well, I follow a bunch of rescues on Instagram and Facebook, like Mm -hmm. local dog rescues. And yeah, so we brought home um, a little pug mix. It's a pug. You love pugs. And it's what's cool is that, that it's not a purebred pug, so it can breathe better. Oh, that's humane of however that happened. Yeah. Humans are so bad and weird to animals. But, you know, it's not your fault. Uh, we've got some fun, hot news in Bellingham this week that I'm excited to talk about. Okay. We are... The city is planning to shut down several streets or several parking areas. I think some will be full streets and some will just be parking on the streets to completely, as as much as we can, move restaurant uh, Bellingham's restaurant and bar scene outside for the summer. Huh. That's I know, isn't cool. that fun? Because uh, as we've been learning, air-conditioned indoor spaces are some of the most dangerous places you can be. But outdoor spaces, uh, it's significantly less risky. Yeah. And oh, that's I, cool. I love eating and drinking outside. Yes, sign me up. Uh, and Bellingham has the most beautiful summers. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing what they come up with. Like, in in my head, I'm thinking just, like, railroad is no more. It's just like a block party. <laughs> Everyone's out, and it's, like, like kind of European. <laughs> and I know. Sure. Like, some people will have to, they'll have to come up with some alternate routes for, like, people to drive through. But honestly, like, downtown Bellingham itself is so small. Like, if you have to park over by the abandoned grocery store and then walk a couple blocks, like, it's not really that much of an imposition. We just get Mm. comfortable being able to park our cars and drive. But hopefully, like, I I should be walking more. I I don't live that far away from downtown. I could probably walk there more often. Yeah, same. Save gas, get some exercise, better for the environment. Lots of reasons to do it. Very cool. We also got put on a a list. I don't know if you saw Mm -hmm. that. um, We are like the number ninth in the country for mid-sized cities as far as like expenses go. So with okay. the, like housing prices ratio to medium income, medium housing to medium income is like bad. Yeah. <laughs> Which we know. Shocking. Like, yeah. Shocking. Um, I think like more than more than even the, the housing prices, I worry about the income mm-hmm. more than anything. It's like I don't I hate seeing the median income and as a teacher like a historically not very well paid profession. It's like, oh, well, I make more than that. And it's like, ooh, mm. I'm a teacher. And like, what's everybody else making if if me in a historically not very well paid position is making, uh... and I, I, don't, I don't make the median income, but like for me and my boyfriend, like our household income is above the median. So mm-hmm. and I imagine that most people live in a household with more than one person Mm -hmm. generally i don't know maybe that's a maybe that's a weird assumption but like i feel like if you're buying a house most people aren't buying a house by themselves some are some are 
<laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, should we zoom on over to our interview? Yeah, sounds good. Today, our guest is Alexark Mastema. Alexark Mastema. Mastema. Okay, perfect. Uh, Alexark and his life partner, Terry, opened one of Bellingham's favorite establishments, the Black Drop Coffee House. They have since passed it along to a longtime employee, but Alexark and Terry now own uh, Maniac Coffee Roasting. And Alexark is also the king of Sunnyland <laughs> and an avid crow fanatic, which we will get into both of those later. But yeah. Good, because I'm so curious. How are you doing, Alexa? And what are you drinking? I'm doing pretty well. Um, actually, today is, I, I'll be honest, like today is one of the first days in a little while that I wasn't kind of uh, just feeling the COVID blues, you know. Mm. The, the last week was I was just waking up kind of tired every day and just sort of sad. But um, today's great. I'm a little bit ahead on work. Knocked work out. It's nice out. And I'm going to be drinking the Colshan Blackberry Apero, we like which if those. anyone knows me, like anyone who out there probably audibly gasped because I'm your classic Pacific Northwest middle-aged white dude with a beard and wearing flannel who drinks IPA. And <laughs> I finally moved away from the IPA, but this Blackberry Apero is just really amazing. It's got great flavor. You know, as much as I also have enjoyed my time with the IPA, all all lovers need a vacation from each other every yeah. once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, what about you, Annika? You said you were you might be packing up your stuff in the classroom, so you're probably not drinking a beer right now, are you? <laughs> I am not drinking a beer. That's a, this is a first because usually it's one of my favorite things to do is have a drink with a. With a guest, but... And it's probably looked down on to bring in a drink to Yeah, to they don't really appreciate hours. it. Uh, this is this is no diss on our friends down south over at Elysian, but I reached in the fridge and got a Super Fuzz. I just don't know if that's really my favorite beer. <laughs> but I'm going to finish it because I opened it. <laughs> finish what you started. Yeah. You don't want to be wasteful. Yeah. And if anybody in Seattle hears this, I do like their other beers. Okay, so since this is a Bellingham podcast, what brought you to Bellingham? Pretty much random chance. I was living in Denver in 1992 with uh, three of my best friends, and we were living in the downtown part of Denver before it got gentrified, so it was, it was really just, it was a rough neighborhood. There was one summer where we had 90 straight days of 90 degree plus heat, and then in the middle of that, there was like a drug house down the block, and our apartment building got hit with automatic gunfire over some kind of drug fight and the three of us were like screw denver let's get out of here and so we pretty much we pretty much had this conversation of like okay do we want to live landlocked or near water and kind of being midwesterners we're like water so (laughs) east coast or west coast west coast all right california oregon or washington california no nothing's happening in oregon now this is early 90s so like washington with grunge you know like Let's go oh, to Washington. Yeah. So we all picked up a few extra jobs, pretty much just settled on Seattle, sold everything we could after we saved up enough money and drove their 1988 Ford Taurus in my pickup truck with a trailer. And I drove from Denver to Seattle straight nonstop because we didn't have enough money to stop anywhere and sleep. I want to say that was like a 23 and a half hour drive. And mm-hmm. my the person I was driving with didn't know how to drive. So it's just me like plowing through and we eventually get to Seattle and we all share a motel room and we just realized after about a week that seattle is it was the same big city with a different background you know it's all big cities are kind of the same with just a slightly different flavor so we packed everything up again and decided to head north on i-5 and you know this is like kind of i mean we still had the internet then but you know it wasn't you didn't have it on your phone and you couldn't just pull up a lot of reviews of cities and shit so we just drove north from Seattle, stopping in every town and spending a few hours there or staying the night and trying to decide, like, if we liked the vibe of the town. And, uh, of course, you know, I mean, <laughs> our first stops like Everett and Marysville and, uh, you know, Arlington and just all these wonderful places that you go to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, back then, back then, like Mount Vernon and Burlington weren't quite as, as quaint as they are now. They've They've actually, like, turned into a nice town but back then it was just like no just keep going and we're starting to get worried because we have our big rand mcnally atlas you know that we're map that we're looking in and unfolded and we're like we only have like two or three towns left before the border (laughs) you know and Uh then then we hit that beautiful part of i5 north Mm -hmm. between 
you know, between um, Skagit and Whatcom, you know, where it's just hills and there's a million shades of green. And there was a sign that's like Bellingham, population 60,000, home of Western Washington University. And uh, my three friends that I was moving up here with are, are all gay. So in the early 90s, like knowing that you're in a small university town, you generally know it's going to be liberal tendencies. So we were kind of happy about that. We got into Bellingham and we were like, holy crap, you know, this is this is the perfect mid-sized town for us, you know, coming from Denver and Seattle. And then we stayed, we rented a room on the Coachman Inn on Samish and stayed there for a week and a half. And this would never happen today, but at the end of the week and a half, we all had jobs and apartments lined up. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so we we all pretty much still live up here. My, My two friends, Don and Nikki, still live up here and they now have a publishing company and they live in the York neighborhood. And, um, the other friend, Scott, he eventually bailed out to go to San uh, Las Vegas, and we all kind of lost touch with him. But yeah, so it was just kind of a through a dart, more or less. Wow. <laughs> I am impressed, though, that you persevered through Everett, Marysville, <laughs> Arlington, and late 80s, early 90s, Mount Vernon and Burlington. Like, that's pretty yeah. impressive. Oh, imagine <laughs> if you had missed the Bellingham sign and Blaine was your last hope. Oh. Right. <laughs> Custer it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I've always wanted to pick up that meth habit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I've, I've pretty much lived up here since then and just I made one excursion to live in Seattle for a year. But other than that, I've just been in Bellingham and now I'm just one of the characters in town, I guess. That's exactly why we're here, to get to know all the characters. And, you know, that's just every time we talk to someone, and especially you, because you were pretty scientific about it, stopping at all of the towns. And you could, <laughs> Bellingham just has that really special vibe. Pe- yeah, people want to be here. And we're so excited that we can be here, too. Uh, uh, speaking of Bellingham, we want to know if you have a Bellingham story. So something amusing with a person, place, or thing that other people would recognize. Well, having owned the the black drop on the corner of Champion and Grand, which was a major thoroughfare between the Mission and the the Rainbow uh, Center, which in the early 2000s was a people experiencing homelessness and mental outreach center that was next to the downtown bus center. So we were kind of on this main thoroughfare. So I definitely experienced a lot of people. I have stories about Geronimo. I have stories about the infamous Roman Stadler. Um, Roman. We've about Roman, <laughs> Look at all these shout-outs. Roman is uh, my dog's doppelganger. <laughs> That's great. Um, I have stories about the Rowdy Buckaroo, okay. but do you, do you remember the Rowdy Buckaroo? Or? Rowdy Buckaroo hasn't come up yet. A little bit before our time, if you want to okay. enlighten us. I can do a Rowdy Buckaroo story, or I can do a Mr. Peanut story. Can you do both? Is that too much to ask? <laughs> I will try, yes. So, all right. So we'll start with Mr. Peanut, because that's the one I kind of mentally prepared a little more. Mr. Peanut's family has a very long and deep-rooted Bellingham history. His name is Steve Stimpson. So the last name probably gives you a clue to how deep roots he has Bellingham. And he used to own, or still does maybe, the building that's just south of the museum, uh, the City of Subdued Excitement building. And Steve Stimson actually invented, and I believe copyrighted, the City of Subdued Excitement phrase. And the reason I think he had it copyrighted or trademarked or whatever is because at one point, the government of Bellingham wanted to use that as the official motto, and he gave them a hard legal slapdown saying, no, this is mine. Oh. (laughs) This is mine. And it's for the people. This is not for the city or the government. Steve, Mr. Peanut, he had enough money from his family that he didn't work. He was like probably in his early 50s, late 40s. And he didn't work. He just he just goofed around and did weird stuff. And so he had this building with the, the, the large picture window pane. And I believe it's now a salon. But his, his hobby was basically like staging scenes in this thing. Oh, I can't remember the term. Like when you're a kid and you like make a little scene in a shoebox like or whatever. Like a diorama. A diorama. He would make dioramas in his, quote, store, end quote. But the store was never open. It was always closed. But you would walk by and he would have like mannequins sitting at a dinner table holding toy dinosaurs in their hands. And then two days later, like the mannequins would be hanging upside down from the ceiling, wearing space suits. I don't know where he got all these weird accoutrements for his store or the time to set it up. But he, basically, he just constantly was setting up this ever-evolving diorama. And, and you know, in the, the 90s and 2000s, you, you had to walk by 
the city of subdued building because like it was always changing there was always some kind of weird thing in there that he was putting together and my girlfriend terry and i walked by all the time and would look and it was always closed of course because it wasn't really a store it was just like a public playground for him <laughs> and one day we walked by and he had a, a open close sign it was like on a wooden block and you know someone had burnished open and closed in the sign but one day we walk by and it's open and so we go in and we meet steve and he is just such a gregarious really nice really weird dude but <laughs> we just had so much fun talking to him and we're looking around because like this store is never open and we, we gotta buy at least one thing and we're looking around just nothing is really catching our eye and this is a this is before we opened the black drop but we were in the we were in the planning stages like it was it was a signed deal and we had a lease and we were actually in the process of building out and so finally he's like do you see anything you want to buy and as we're leaving i'm like can i buy your open sign <laughs> and he's like sure one dollar for you friend <laughs> and so i bought his open and close sign and since he no longer had an open and close sign he never opened again but <laughs> for whatever reason he really became enamored with terry and i when we did open the black drop so it was obviously an official mascot outfit at some point, but he had an official Mr. Peanut costume, like a hard peanut shell and long black cloth arms with the white gloves and a cane. And it had the hat and the monocle and, you know, he could see through the black mesh and he wore black leggings with shoes. And he would either walk around downtown playing a saxophone in his Mr. Peanut costume. This is so Bellingham. Yeah. <laughs> Some local dude who's, you know, his name is attached to, you know, a hundred, you know, acre park. And he just walks around wearing a peanut costume playing saxophone. So he'd either walk around playing a saxophone or his favorite thing to do, and I don't know why, but was to hang out in the black drop in his Mr. Peanut costume. And he would have a fly fishing pole. Like this is right out of the cartoons, but he would tie a dollar bill or a $5 bill to the end of the line and uh -huh. whiz it out onto the sidewalk or the street. And when people go to grab it, you know, like, he would try and zip it back into the shop. I mean, <laughs> I mean you, you look down, you see a $5 bill, and, like, it starts moving along, and you think it's the breeze, and you look up, and there's a some dude wearing a peanut costume with a fishing pole reeling you in. But when we, when we finally did open the shop, he came in on our first day, and he wanted to give us a congratulations on opening your business present. And we were kind of like, oh, wow, thank you so much. And, like, I think we were naive, expecting something genuine or, <laughs> or more material. And so he has this box, and it's all wrapped, and he gives it to us, and we open it up. And he had given us a 1986 English to Vulcan, Vulcan to English translation dictionary. Oh, you, oh, you, <laughs> oh. And it was just like the biggest, like, sad trombone. But it was like, all right, <laughs> thanks, Mr. Peanut. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> That's funny, but though. Mr. Peanut is an old time downtown, old time downtown character, and he didn't work a day in his life. <laughs> I'm feeling so much secondhand disappointment for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at least we could help customers order their coffee in Vulcan. Right, if that ever comes up. <laughs> I think it makes for the perfect story, though. Yeah, because yeah, like you, like you said, knowing him, would you expect any different? <sighs> I don't, I don't know. know why I got my hook. It's, it's like the scene in The Office when Michael opens the dead dove do not eat package from the freezer. And he's like, I don't know what I expected. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So there's another one. The right? rowdy, rowdy Buckaroo. I don't have a lot of stories about him. I don't really have too many stories about him, except for he would come into our shop and get coffee while he was doing his quote rounds. What he did was he was the official mascot of the horseshoe before it sold to the new owners. And he dressed up in old-time cowboy gear, you know, cowboy hat, checkered shirt, suspenders. He would have the chaps and everything. And he would walk around, and he just carried a big frickin' bag of nickels, and he would put nickels and dimes in any parking meter that was expired or about to expire. Oh, that's and, nice. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't, like, even put it, like, courtesy of the Rowdy Buckaroo or anything, courtesy of the horseshoe. He just, he would just would do it, and everyone kind of knew who had done that. And the cops would ticket him because it's not, you know, he can't feed other people's meters. But, he, you know, since he was a part of a, a food institution in town, they easily were able to cover his little tickets that he was getting. But the cops were just so constantly stymied at him. And he would just walk around and just, and he had this minivan. It was like a Dodge Astro or something. He would just mm -hmm. drive around and like feed people's meters. And that's what he did all day, every day. And it was just such a cool thing. Like just some dude who's just his whole job or his whole passion in life is to drive around and put a nickel in people's meters while wearing cowboy clothes. But I believe, I believe if you go to the 
the horseshoe nowadays, I, I think their mural has updated to include him on it. But I can't say that for certainty because I am never sober when I'm in the horseshoe. So That's fair. Going into the horseshoe is like the boat ride part of Willy Wonka, you know, like <laughs> uh-huh. everything's just colors and like someone's singing and you're just like, I don't know, I just just want hash browns, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there might be like some disturbing imagery right. going on. And... Well, that's usually when you go to the bathroom, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I know I've I've only been to the horseshoe once when I was sober and it was kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's like going to Disneyland when you're not on acid. Just kind of yeah, like, it's, it's exactly like that. It's exactly like <laughs> that. Okay, so Alexark, am I pronouncing that right? It's Alexark, but Alex is fine. Alec, okay. And I, I love how you have so many weird name guests on your show, like yeah. on your cast. Like It seems like every second or third person has a weird name, because like, my full name is Alexark Whittington Mastema V, and... I'm going to I'm going to give you an exclusive and this is the first time I have ever admitted it in my life in public. Ooh, okay. But it is completely made up and I legally changed it when I was 19. <laughs> I usually tell people my parents were Greek. It's Israeli. <laughs> I'm from Ukraine. I'll say anything other than admit that I basically legally changed it when I was a really angry little 19-year-old goth kid and I just moved out. <laughs> you such a good reason. Heard it first here folks. <laughs> Well, that yes, <laughs> that's great. But I, I love how your show just has like it, it seems like every other or every third podcast, you know, there has to be a short conversation about like the pronunciation guides of your name. Uh huh. Yes, <laughs> we had Re Rianin, but we said Rianin, but it's Rianin. Rianin. Uh, you had Danger. Yes. Danger Dan. Danger Dan. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a tough one, but you had Django. Mm-hmm. Just, just weird white people names. And then we, and then we, <laughs> and then we had Dave and we called him Dan. Just once and I fixed it. And it's only because we left it in the script by accident. It's a holdover. But, you know, Annika and I, we want to be ambassadors for those people whose names are hard to pronounce. Annika has a long history of people mispronouncing her name. And my last name is long and intimidating. So, you know, we really just want to be a platform for people to express this concern. Fortunately, I've known a few Annikas, but they went with the softer end, so the Annika. Yeah, but the Annika. Then they and scrambled I... back to Germany, but... Yeah, na- naturally. <laughs> I get called Annika quite a bit, but I don't notice. Like, I always of... notice. I know. All of my friends always notice. They're like, that person didn't pronounce your name right. And I was like, what? It's a pick your battle. You know? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Well, my sister's name is Monica, so I think I just got used to being called Annika. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Thanks, Mom, for that. <laughs> but if somebody calls me Anika, I, like, can't even let them finish. I no, that, no, It's not it. But anyway, so before we get into coffee, I have a quick crow question and then and then one more question. So crows are very smart. And I heard the, the study that happened at UW about, like, them recognizing faces and like retaliating well not retaliating but like appropriately capturing them yes yes have you ever heard of any interaction between a crow and a small but mighty wiener dog who like <laughs> who like keeps barking at the same crow and the crow gets mad at the dog i just i'm worried that it's gonna escalate so i just want to like strangely specific yeah, yeah. i wonder where this could have come up from I I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, it's from Roman. <laughs> just kidding. It's Romy. I, I just woke up one day and I, I don't know why, but like, I, I think I'd read an interview about crows or maybe I'd read the, the Western, uh, the WW study. And, but yeah. I just woke up and I got really interested in crows. And then I started reading books and studies about crows because I, I have a very large rookery, which is a crow house outside of my roasting location. And so I was like, I want to learn more about these birds. And like, you know, I, I'd read that they're really intelligent. So I'm reading more. And suddenly I realized like I'd, I'd read all the books. <laughs> and, and so I definitely don't call myself a crow expert. But anytime a crow thing comes up on the Bellingham subreddit, like I get tagged, like they're like, Alex, time to speak about crows. So, you know, then I'll pop in and give my little crow speech. But um, yeah, crows, crows can recognize people's faces. And more importantly and eerie is that they can communicate what that face looks like without the face being present 
two other crows through generations. What? Yes. That's the scariest so, thing I've ever heard. A crow that has never seen you can see you and know if you're a good or bad person. And the, and the reason they can do that, one of the reasons they can do this is that crows are the only, well, not the only, well, no, they are the only bird and one of the few animals on Earth that are able to retain a memory of an experience. And the next time a similar experience to that memory happens, they're able to pull that memory back out and kind of juxtapose the two mm-hmm. and then store a combined experience like, okay, this one was good, this one was bad. Let's let's kind of hold on to this memory and see where we go. We'll just be cautious in the future with bearded man who gave us food one time and then yelled at us another time. And and as they continue to experience bearded man feeding them or not, they're able to decide whether or not experiences with bearded man are worth it or not, and then pass it on to their crow flock, which, this is a really fun thing, crows have multiple languages. Ooh. Crows have a generally a a family language and then a regional language and then kind of a a national crow language. So they, you know, they basically have their own patois of of language as you get smaller and more concrete. Is one of them Vulcan? Is that why the book is coming in handy? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But yeah, so I, I basically started treating my crows really well. I gave them treats that I knew they would like. And I started doing a specific whistle when I fed them. I go, and then throw out a bunch of peanuts. And they really like peanuts because it's sort of a puzzle to get to the food. It's not just eating, it's, you know, it's fun eating. And now I, I basically have about 200 crows that I can summon with a whistle and they follow me around the afternoon when I'm walking around drinking beer and uh, if they see me at Colshin, when Colshin was open, if they see me at Colshin, they would like sit on the lines and call at me and stuff, so. That's like a superpower. <laughs> if only I could harness it to have them bring me quarters or something. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They could call you Murder Man, which is more of a villain name, but it's like... <laughs> if you don't know the, the lingo, it sounds... <laughs> I get it. But yeah, so um, I've, I've basically interacted with about two generations of crows at this point, maybe three, and, and they recognize me and they're nice to me. And there are some pigeons that realize the crows... Crows are very territorial and mm-hmm. they do what's called mobbing to birds that they don't like. whether it be eagles or raptors or seagulls. And it's basically where all the crows kind of peck at the other bird while it's flying. And they get so close that the other bird isn't able to get any airlift and it's being attacked and it falls to the ground and dies or it leaves. And these pigeons, these three pigeons started hanging out because they realized that the crows didn't see them as a threat. And so now these pigeons are a part of the crow family at, at my work. And since all the crows kind of look alike, but the three pigeons all look vaguely different. We have, we have three pigeons and we named them corn dog, Crisco and Chalupa. Mm. They'll actually come up to within a foot of me and let me feed them by hand, and you know it's really cool. And the crows, the crows will let me get within about three feet, but they're a little more, a little more wary. But they still know I'm a trusted person. Yeah. So did you see the picture of Maria? You're you're culturally Catholic. So who's the what's the Pope's name? Oh God. The, yeah. <laughs> Pope. Pope. Crow. Pope. Like Pope Francis. Oh, Pope Francis. But yeah, he releases cr- the dove. The, the, oh, yeah, the he released it. Cr- he like released a dove out the window, and everyone's like, "Oh!" And then like this crow comes and like kills the dove. Yep, the crow's like, "Fuck you!" Oh no. Yeah, that's. It was a good meme. That's painful. My my favorite my favorite crow picture is the one of and people think it's Photoshop, but it's not. But it's of a crow, and this is something they commonly do. But it's of a crow riding on the back of a flying eagle. They oh. they. They will very often find a larger bird that's flying, and just for shits and giggles, they will fly and land on the back of the flying bird, and then just sit there and let the other bird be their their flying carpet, basically. <laughs> You're larger and stupider. I will make you do the. Soon, crows are going to invent like little harnesses, and we'll see yeah. crows like riding them around like cowboys and stuff. They're so much more charming than I ever would have guessed. Yeah, they're really sweet birds. So cool. Well, I will tell Romy to knock it off because he probably doesn't have a very good reputation amongst the crows in Bellingham. They're they're really they they're pretty playful animals. So I mean, they might just be fucking you, with him. Your dog is probably just a big game to them. You know, like I saw a crow the other day. That we have a we also have a wild rabbit by my work. Like apparently we're a, a really cheap small petting zoo <laughs> where you can't you can't touch any of the animals. But but we had there's this baby wild rabbit and. It was doing circles around a, I don't know, one of those power boxes or something by the Options High School, and there was a crow on top of the the power box. And every time the rabbit stopped jumping, it would fly down and peck the rabbit's butt, 
to make it keep going. And then the crow would go up and watch the rabbit run until it stopped, and they would peck it. And did this for like a half hour, just fucking around with the rabbit. Like, well, ate all my peanuts for the day, and everyone's out still foraging, so I'm just going to screw around with this rabbit and then scream at my friends when they come home. <laughs> what a life. Oh, it's a life. Yeah. Yeah, so they call you the king of Sunnyland. How did that come about? And uh, are we supposed to, like, give you alms or anything specific? <laughs> Yeah, we've never talked to a royal before. <laughs> so um, I'm a part of the Sunnyland Facebook group. You know, it's a neighborhood group, whatever. And elections were coming up, and not a lot of people were throwing their name in the hat for for the head chairperson position. I said, I'll do it, but you'll have to acknowledge me as king of Sunnyland. <laughs> and people are like, be careful what you say. You might just get elected. And I'm like, ha, 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 because no one's going to elect me because everyone knows I'm kind of a fuck-all kind of guy. Um <laughs> Election night comes around, and I've I've had a couple of beers, and uh, the then chairperson stands up and is like, does anybody want to run? And a friend of mine nominated me, and I was like, oh. They were like, do you want to give a speech? So, so I get up, and I give some, like, five to ten-minute speech, which I don't remember, and I don't remember what I said. I do remember that I was kind of, like, pacing around the, the stage, like like one of those pauses of life speech kind of guys, and I'm, like, shaking my fist, and like, we're going to do this, and suddenly it's amazing, and... Uh, Anyway, so I shouldn't have done that because I basically got unanimously elected. Yeah, I don't know why you assumed that the guy with a bunch of birds that shows up drunk wouldn't be elected by his <laughs> local neighborhood in Bellingham. In fact, I definitely could have predicted that one for you. <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm not a, I've never done any kind of city government or civics type stuff. So now like, I get like nine emails a day about ADUs and DADUs and... Don't forget to put the next Zoom meeting about the planning commission into your, your Google calendar tonight. It's going to be two and a half hours, and then tomorrow night's an MNAC meeting for two and a half <laughs> hours. But, oh, you also have these emails that you have to respond to. And then not only that, but then when people know you're the head chairperson slash president. Slash king. Slash king. They just they just complain to you about any old thing that's on their head. I, I What is it? Someone, someone once complained about like the weather to me, or, or asked when like it was going to be nicer, and oh no, just you get people who have no connection of of what my position is, which is like you know I'm the president not God, of, yeah I'm I'm the head chairperson of a tiny little neighborhood association that has a like two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollar budget a year, you know like, <laughs> but anyway they people roll with it, and a lot of them call me king, and I'm really looking forward to next February when elections are up again and someone else can be. <laughs> it can be doing it. Well, thank you for taking care of your neighborhood during your tender. Tenure, not tender. Oh, my God. Tender. <laughs> tenure. I do love my neighborhood. I've lived here for like 19 years, so in the same house. So, you know, it is it is my neighborhood, and I've seen Sunnyland change a whole lot. Like, I've oh, seen yeah. all of the neighborhoods change so much. Like, uh, Roosevelt's really become nice, and like, when I first moved here, the Alphabet neighborhood, this is... It's the lettered streets. I always call it's it alphabet too. That's all right. It's not the most, it's not a polite term and it's not a, an okay term, but in the early 90s and mid 90s, we used to call it the alpha ghetto. And that's how run down the lettered streets were back then. It was the alpha ghetto. But yeah. now, like, good luck finding a house over there that's under a million dollars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you and your partner, Terry, opened Black Drop. When was that? What inspired the coffee shop? Just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, I just fell into coffee uh, in 1992-ish. Well, in 91, I graduated high school, and I was one of those people who, I don't know if my high school just sucked or whatever, but I did really well, and everyone was like, you're so smart. And then I went to a university and quickly found out I'm not smart, I'm just clever. So I, I did a few months at university and promptly bombed out, and that was in Colorado, and it was like Greeley, Colorado, University of Northern Colorado, and I moved to Denver, the big city. My parents are so nice. They found out, like, my graduation date of high school, and they moved to Florida on that day. So, happy graduation. <laughs> We've got the truck packed, and we're moving to Florida. See you later. So, oh, I didn't really funny. even have any family to fall on, you know? Like, I'm just kind of like, all right, uh, now I'm going to college, and I'm not doing well because I'm not super smart, but I'm going to go to Denver and make a try. And so, I go to Denver, and I don't have a job. I don't have any money. So, I spend a little bit of time living out of my truck. And a friend of mine that I'd made from college was like, hey, this, this coffee shop's hiring. And, you know, it's like a small chain. And this, this coffee shop was called Peaberry Coffee. And they were sort of following mm -hmm. the early Starbucks model where, like, you could buy 
you could buy beans, you could buy drinks, you could buy snacks, food. They had a wall of like spice grinders and home espresso machines and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, I just was able to, I, I had a more defined palate regarding the coffee so I could taste the coffee and describe the coffee better than the other baristas. And the one thing that Peaberry Coffee did different than Starbucks was they actually had a coffee roaster at each location. Mm. Um, they had a 12 kilo probat at each location so customers could actually watch the roasting process. So I was moved to be an assistant roaster for the store. And over time, I became head roaster for the store. And then I became a training roaster where I would go to other stores and train their roasters. And then I became uh, assistant roast master for the company. There's a saying in the roasting industry, there are roasters who have had a coffee fire and roasters who haven't had a coffee fire yet. Mm -hmm. And so in 92 or 93-ish, I became a roaster who finally had their fire. And I ended up burning a $60,000 machine pretty badly. And I was encouraged to go find other coffee opportunities. Uh, well. <laughs> Tell surprise, which I did. Uh, and I've, I've basically been in the coffee industry since the early 90s with different companies and different organizations and in different positions. So fast forward to the early 2000s, I meet my partner online, not through a dating app site, but uh, through, through livejournal.com, uh, which was mm -hmm. like an early blogging site because we're both blogger diarist type people but we we met through that and um i was like i've always wanted to start a coffee shop and there's like this little coffee cart for sale in the mall and she had a history she has a history in banking and money which i am not particularly good at so she went over the books and she was like this just doesn't make sense none of this is like money's appearing on this account out of nowhere he's just kind of robbing peter to pay paul and so she was like, let's, maybe we should start our own shop. So we, we did. We started looking around and we, we looked at so many places in town and man, just like nothing was really working. And finally, the Black Drops location, which used to be called the Donut Kitchen. And the Donut Kitchen was the last, the la one of the last places that served the, the swing shift workers for GP. So it was like old school diner. And hmm. like when we cleaned it, like you, we, it's, we spent two or three weeks scrubbing the tobacco and smoke out of the walls. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we finally put that together and, and got the shop up and running. And I mean, we really, we scratched every, every surface we could to get that place up and running. Like there's, there's like a little coffee bar set up, like where you get your cream and sugar and stuff. That's actually my old armoire. Like it was my closet. <laughs> oh, cool. We couldn't figure out a way to like, we couldn't afford anything else. And I'd always been a renter. So, you know, being a renter, like I could, I can take care of the toilet. I can change light bulbs. I can do minor cleaning, but you know, I didn't know how to like lay floating pergo flooring or pull in three phase electrical or bend conduit or even paint. Like I'd never painted a house in my life, you know, like run plumbing, do a new toilet wax seal. So I had all these Home Depot how-to books and we were so tight on cash that we just did all of that stuff ourselves and with friends. And uh, using LiveJournal, which was basically a, a really early version of Facebook with more encouragement on writing. Mm -hmm. But we, we had a, we started a live journal group for the black drop. And before we even opened, we had, I want to say like 300 fans, people who are following our page. So when we opened, we just had this automatic influx of people who were excited to see us, you know, which nowadays isn't very unusual, but in the, the early 2000s, using social media to, to pull people in, people weren't really doing that. So it was kind of a luck of the draw kind of thing that yeah. we decided to do that. And we opened the Black Drop, and the Black Drop, we, we went over various names, but basically the Black Drop name is a, a reference to a Sherlock Holmes story, because uh, I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan, and it's, I don't remember the exact co combination, but it's... Basically, it's like cocaine and laudanum and <laughs> morphine, but that's called the black drop. And so it's it's something you shoot into your veins. And we thought that kind of sounds like coffee. Screw it. We'll just go with that. And then we ran the black drop for a number of years. And we realized that we wanted to control more of our quality. So we uh, opened a, a roasting operations. And then at that point, we're running two businesses with like nine or 10 employees. And my partner was going back to school at Western to get a degree and our kid was like getting to be 12 and we kind of missed a lot of her life running these businesses. And we realized that we still had several of our original employees from day one. And we realized like these people have been with us for a long time and they're really committed to this, this coffee shop. And we're kind of tired of the coffee shop. Uh, let's just let them have it. So we, we sold the coffee shop to the employees because they obviously loved it. And that, that the, the employee we sold it to is um, Stephanie Oplar, still mm -hmm. the current owner. 
But anyway, yeah. So, but Stephanie still owns it with her husband, and like it's still a kind of a family-run thing, and it's yeah, yeah, <laughs> very cool. And then that's when is that when you opened Maniac Coffee Roasting, or was that already in Maniac, the works? We started Maniac in about two thousand six or seven. Okay, cool. Because I got fired from the Black Drop, <laughs> even though I owned oh, no. it. Do you want to hear that story? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> So behind the counter gets very hot. We've got refrigerators and boilers and steam machines and ice machines. Everything's giving off heat and there's no air movement there. You know, like there's no windows or anything at the black drop behind the counter. And I'm not the best point person when it comes to social interactions. So I get fussy. I get it. Yeah. And it's hot and it's yucky. And some guy orders an iced mocha with toddy and I make it. And he's like, oh, it's not strong enough. Can you add another shot of toddy? So I add more toddy to it. And he's like, that's still not strong enough. Can you add more? And I'm like, so I add more. And I'm like, at this point, I've added what should be like $2 worth of toddy. But I'm like, hey, can you know, so that last shot's going to be 75 cents, please. You know, he's like, and he has his drink. He's like, well, I'm not paying 75 cents extra. He slides the drink across the counter at me. And there in front of his, in front of all of the customers and my employees and his five-year-old child, I take the iced mocha. And I throw it into his chest and say, you can go fuck yourself. And then I promptly called my business partner, Terry, and said, I just did this. I probably should not work at the shop anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> and she said, yeah, you cannot work at the shop anymore. You're fired. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And that is why we started the roasting operations, because I was no longer suitable for the public. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Everyone yeah. has different strengths. <laughs> yeah, so that would have been a 2006 or 7-ish. I, I think it's 6, but we started the roasting operations, and then that just took off amazingly well, and I went, I joined the uh, Specialty Coffee Association of America, and I was we were kind of on the ground floor of the world and the Breast Championships, and I got qualified to judge Breast Championships, so I would judge, like, local, national, regional, world Breast Championships, and... I was really able to bring a lot of that knowledge from those world championships and and other judges back home, and that really allowed me to kick up my training at the Black Drop. Yeah, for sure. So there's a in in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we care about like two things: coffee and beer. So what what would you want people to know about coffee that could maybe make their experience better? I guess the things I would encourage people to do are one. Don't just stick with your standard. I mean, it's great if you like your standard blend, but I really encourage people to look into single origins. And I also encourage people to look into lighter roasts. Uh, the, the darker you roast, the more of the, the acids and sugars and the nuances are kind of over overwhelmed by the, the roastiness. You know, it's sort of like taking a, you can take any kind of cut of meat and it can be a really nice piece of meat. But if you're just putting Cajun blackening seasoning on everything, it's all going to taste the same. So I would really encourage people to look into, you know, if, if you like dark roasts, that's fine. There's no judgment. You like what you like. But, you know, maybe one time try a medium roast or a, a medium single origin roast and just kind of branch out because um, the terroir of, of coffee is, is so much greater than even that of wine. And people talk about wine as being this huge, expansive world of tasting notes and conversation about flavors but coffee is even more so because coffee grows in so many more places than just than wine can. So you, you really have a, a, an expansive world to explore when it comes to coffee. And especially as you get into light and medium roasts, uh, you, you're able to you're able to really pick up those those different flavors that wouldn't be present in a dark roast or a blend. So if you if you were, you know, standing at a shop or, or talking to somebody and they really wanted to experiment with a different like uh, a different brew style or a different uh, level of, of roast what are some maybe guiding questions you might ask them or something you might want to know about maybe what they like in flavors that could help them decide yeah yeah uh, i mean the first thing i would ask is do you take cream or sugar because certain things play better with cream and sugar than others if you like cream and sugar i'm going to encourage someone to go for a medium sweetness but low acidity coffee, something like Brazil, Colombia, uh, a mediumly roasted Mexico, uh, a Flores, 
you know, but I would encourage them to stay away from Africans because light roasted Africans are going to have a really big acidity content. And people think acidity is bad in coffee, but it's actually what gives coffee its liveliness on your tongue. If if you imagine drinking orange juice without that that acid, it would just be thick and cloying. So acidity is what gives coffee its liveliness and kind of allows it to, to dance on your tongue there. So, but that that acidity doesn't work well with cream and sugar. You know, it kind of kind of calcifies the cream and makes it thicken up a little bit weird. Mm. So I would ask if they take cream and sugar, and if they do, I would encourage them to look into a low acid coffee. If they don't take cream and sugar, I would encourage them to initially. I would encourage them to start with a, a light roasted Central American, and then maybe move to some medium roasted Indonesians, and then finally finish with the Africans. The African coffees. Are, are where coffee started, Ethiopia in particular, and their flavors are so so beautiful, so complex, but they're also very challenging initially. There's a lot of acid, there's a lot of sweetness, there's a lot of complex notes. Um, it's almost the body is almost more akin to like drinking tea, so it's you don't get that thick cup of coffee feeling like you do when you drink in diner coffee or whatever. You know, it's it's almost like a tea coffee. Yeah, but. Uh, I try to, I, I've worked with many customers and many people over the years, and I try and walk them down the path of coffee. You know, we, we start with a dark roast, and then maybe we move to a, a dark roasted single origin, and then maybe a, a mediumly medium blend, and then a medium single origin. We'll explore that area for a little while, you know, but the, my goal is usually to try and get people to, to work their way down to the, the Africans and the Indonesian coffees. And there's nothing wrong with blends. There's nothing wrong with dark roasts. They're all they're all good and fun, but uh, I just want people to be able to experience the the full ratio or the the full offerings that the coffee world has to option offer, you know. And if if they at the end of the day they're like, I just like those dark roasted coffee, like, hey, that's cool. You like your dark roasted coffee, but at least you went out and you tried the other stuff, and you're able to make an informed decision instead of just like, I I, I think even I was, you know, we were all just kind of taught like growing up like the darker the better, you know, and and that's just not true. Like the you. you you lose a lot of flavor when you go with those dark roasts. So, so I just would have a, you know, I just have a conversation with them about what they want and what they like and don't like about a certain blend or brand or something. And then I would just try and find something that fits to them. And then the next time, like maybe encourage them to just go a little bit lighter or try something off to the side. What about you? Do you have a, a personal favorite? My personal favorites change from year to year. Um, coffee being an agricultural product, you know, like even if I buy from the same farm next year, it's going to be a little bit different because of the rain or the sun or the wind. But generally speaking, I really like Mexico. Uh, I'm a big fan of a natural Ethiopian yerga chef. Uh, and natural means that the, the bean, the coffee bean was put out on a patio with the, uh, the fruit still on it. So some of the fruits, sugars and acids are able to soak into the bean a little bit as opposed to a washed. But my, my, one of my favorite coffees that I can rarely get, but I'm hoping to be able to buy this next year is uh, from Yemen. And in Yemen, they tend to store their coffee in clay pots. And it's just, uh, Yemenese coffee is is just completely on a world on its own. It's like, it's a game changer when you finally get to have it. But it's just so rare because unfortunately, Yemen is in the middle of so many military and political conflicts. Uh, well, now I, now I want to try it. Well, keep an <laughs> eye out because I'm, I'm, I'm planning on trying to buy some, so... <laughs> If, uh, if people wanted to find your coffee, the Maniac Beans, where could they locate them in town? There, we have several locations. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm going to list the Black Drop Coffee House first. Uh, they're, they order on a weekly basis, and they order exactly what they think they'll need for the week, so they never have coffee that's more than a week to a week and a half old. Uh, we, you can also find us at the, uh, the Old Town Cafe. We're in both of the Fiamas. But if you're looking to buy bulk, um, you would have to hit the co-op either on Forest Street or out in Cordata. They have us in bag and bulk there. Or if you live out in the county, the East County, we're also in the Rome store and Crossroads Grocery. Or you can order online and I deliver. So it's really fun to explore. The most important thing is just to make sure you have either a good grinder or you have it ground properly. And if you're getting it pre-ground, make sure that your equipment, your brewing equipment is clean. Uh, a lot of people use like a Mr. Coffee type type drip brewer. And if you use a Mr. Coffee type drip brewer, I really recommend once a month putting a cup of white vinegar in along and then topping it off with water and running that through, just, just running it through to make, make a hot water brew, no coffee or anything. Then take that, that pitcher of hot water that you just brewed, 
pour it back into the reservoir and run it again. And um, that'll really help clean out your system, then dump it out and run some clean water through once or twice. Another trick you can do is if you don't really have, if you don't have the, the money or a really fancy home brewer, if you just have a Mr. Coffee type brewer, I recommend in the morning, it takes a little bit more time, but it produces a, like a noticeably vastly better cup of coffee. If you just take, fill your pitcher full of cold water, pour it into the reservoir, just run it through because most home um, most home brewers don't get hot enough to to fully extract the oils and sugars from the the granules so you run the coffee through one the the water through one time and then like I mentioned earlier you take that that hot water and then put it in the reservoir and then by the water sort of being preheated then it'll be able to extract the the oils and sugars more effectively oh that is good if that makes sense it does and it just takes a little more time, and no one wants to do that in the morning. <laughs> yeah, which is why, you know, oftentimes the best time to have a cup of coffee is with some pie later in the day, like Twin Peaks style. Then you don't have to worry about it in the morning. Speaking of, we are the official coffee of Twin Peaks. I didn't even know that. That's yep. amazing. David Lynch approved. Very cool. And Showtime. So when they have their when they have their festivals or events, we, we provide the coffee and yeah. <sighs> That's a that's, that's cool. a huge selling point to come up like uh, half an hour into the episode. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's crazy cool. Well, unfortunately, the blend the blend we made for the Twin Peaks group is exclusive to Twin Peaks. Ah, yeah, and I can't I don't put our business name on the bags. I'm, I'm allowed to say we do it, but I can't sell that blend or offer that that logo to people outside of the festivals or events. So so cool though. But, okay. But still cool to know that, like, you know, Showtime and David Lynch and everyone all had my coffee and tried it and said it was okay enough to to be the coffee of Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say maybe a little bit more than okay enough. I mean, they a lot of that show is just about people sitting around and drinking coffee, so it's a big honor. <laughs> Dale Cooper having a damn fine cup. <laughs> you know, he says it Dale many, Cooper. many times. <laughs> so, one last question before before we go to our next segment so how has COVID-19 impacted Maniac uh, I'm going to turn my mic off and just scream for a moment oh okay yes <laughs> no go for it um, <laughs> I'm going to use your favorite word pivot uh, uh-huh. but no I we almost literally had to create an entirely different business to deal with COVID Coffee, fortunately or unfortunately, is explicitly listed as an essential business, mm-hmm. uh, particularly because I do provide coffee to the fire departments, and you don't want those guys feeling sleepy. But uh, we are considered essential, and naturally, I lost all of my wholesale. You know, coffee shops, restaurants, everything closed. So I went from I went from doing five or six, seven invoices of a couple of hundred pounds of coffee with yeah. one delivery and then maybe 15 to 20 home deliveries a week to zero wholesale sales and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of home deliveries of one $11 bag of coffee at a time. <laughs> Jeez. Um, when it first kicked in, this was before PPP was announced, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall, my partner and I did, and we, uh, we laid our employee off so that she could just get her unemployment claim in before uh, before the system got overwhelmed. But I, I went from, yeah, I went from like 15 to 20 home deliveries a week to I think the top was like maybe 400 and something. And I, you know, without an employee too, I'm doing all those by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's pretty easy to plan a 15 to 15 delivery route. But when you have hundreds, like I was taking bags and like breaking Bellingham into quadrants. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of the, the Northwest quadrant. This is the Northeast, Southwest, Southeast. And then I have to go into those quadrants and like organize them until I finally found an app that, that does all that for you. But it was really painful. And even worse was I was in a very public position where I'm interacting with the public. I'm going into apartment buildings. I'm going into how, well, not houses, but I'm going into all these places and I'm experiencing and interacting with people. And especially during February, March, April, you know, we were we were getting different news every other week. Like, mm-hmm. don't wear a mask. Wear a mask. Wear swimming goggles. Don't wear swimming goggles. You know, like, 
wear a hat, don't wear a hat, you know, change your clothes, wash your hands 17 times, you know, everything was changing every week. So that was really frustrating, like, because I'd be going into apartment buildings or, or doing my thing and interacting with the public in what I thought was a safe way, only to find out the next week, oh, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that ever again. <laughs> and then so I, then I follow the new rules, but then I find out the next week, like, oh, well, actually, the week before where you were doing the thing that was bad was okay, but we're going to add this. So I was working crazy hard, but at the same time, I I was going through a huge amount of personal just fear and terror because I didn't know what was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And I wanted to keep myself and my family safe as well as my customers and the general public. But yeah, we, we had to like sit down and just completely revamp our, our entire operation. I mean, we still roasted coffee, obviously, but like we couldn't, it it was just overwhelming. And I I know that a lot of people were doing it to support us. Like people started throwing money out into, to any local business that was still open that they could, but it was almost like it was almost like a, a crushing love hug. But it did we did keep going and I was eventually able to hire my employee back on and all of that. But it was just a really scary time and now we're you know, we're starting to see more wholesale orders come in and we're still doing a lot of home delivery, uh, because so many people are working from home that, you know, you're not having your cup of coffee between six thirty and seven thirty before heading out to work like work is just all day so you always people are having a pot of coffee going all day long so the the home sales even though even though restaurants are slowly opening back up the home sales are still like kicking so wow something i wouldn't have even ever thought of it was wild it was just it was like i have a piece of paper that i record my home deliveries on and it used to just go from like one side of the page like just one line on one side of the page like Joe at this address wants one pound of Raven's Eye to like two or three full sheets of paper with rows and columns of names and addresses. And I'm just looking at it like, I don't even know how to approach this. Oh my God. But, you know, I, I definitely count my lucky stars that were considered essential and, you know, that the community wanted to support us. And yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad I'm through all the, the early COVID fear of, of, of just the unknown. Yeah, us too. It was, it, it has been a, I'm not saying we're out on any sort of other side, but the, the initial, you know, first two months of sheer panic, I'm glad we're past that in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, at one point, I think it was, March. I think it was mid-April, uh, like my, my stress level got bad enough that I woke up in the middle of the night one night and it literally felt like I had knives in my chest. Oof. And Terry's like, I've never seen you acting like this. I'm like, I'll be okay. And she's like, you can barely talk. So she called 911. And I, it, it turned out I was just having like a full-blown extreme panic attack. <laughs> but to add to the panic attack, I'm going to the ER in mid-April. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like the last place, like the, the, the source of my panic. You know? I'm going uh-huh. to the ER. You know, like, <gasps> And then, then I spent 12 hours in the ER you know, oh, for them to be like, you just had a bad day. Like, thank you. Like, no shit. Well, we are so glad that you guys were able to continue doing what you're doing, even though it seems like it was a total stress factory. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that really appreciated having some normalcy with their favorite cup of coffee in the morning. I, I hope so. And, like, it's just, it's it's also weird because, like, a lot of people are still on a, a, a type of personal lockdown. So I'll deliver to some people and as much as I love them, I'm literally the only person they see on a weekly basis. So they're like zombies. Like they just come out and they're like, hi, talk to us. How was your week? What what does the town look like? Is it on fire? Like, you know, like to talk to like, they just want to talk. And I feel so bad, but it's like, I have a lot of work to do and I really want to talk to you, but, and, but I'm the only person they see for, for the next six days. (laughs) Makes sense. So, oh. so for all those uh, all those people out there, whether they've been shut in for a while or not, do you have uh, any message that you want to get out to them? A final thought or piece of inspiration that you want to get out into the universe? Uh, you know, I do have a positive thought, and I know I, I keep telling my friends and other people this, and the news goes back and forth on it, but I am confident that we will have a vaccine before early 2021. I think it'll be right around then. And people are like, well, we've never developed a vaccine that fast. But the thing is, this is the first time ever that literally every scientist is working wholeheartedly on one thing. 
every scientist on earth is working on one thing, you know, well, who have the training, you know, every, every quantum computer, every database, every laptop that can crunch Rosetta at home, everything is working to, to solve this one thing. And I think we will have something like companies are, are working on vaccines. And even if the vaccine hasn't proven successful yet, they're still producing the vaccine so that if it does become successful, they have the stock that they need to start doing it. You know, they don't have to then move into production mode. They've already been doing production mode concurrently. So I feel like there's so many companies working on a vaccine. There's so many successful things and there's so much brain power behind all of this. And all of these companies are producing stock at the same time as they develop that I think by the time early 2021 comes around, we'll have a vaccine and we will have vaccine stock to start mass vaccinations. So I, you know, we just need to, we just need to really suffer through a bad year, you know, a rough year, washing our hands, being socially distancing, forgetting how to talk to people. And then, and you know, then we can start to, to move back into the old life. I hope you're That's right. My, knock on wood. <laughs> Come, let's do it. Scientists. We believe in you. They're pulling. Yeah. All right. So on that positive thought, we want to switch over to kind of a different, completely different positive thought, which is our final and favorite segment of every week, Local Treasures. Um, in this part of the show, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed that fills us with local pride. Do you have a pick, out something you've been enjoying recently? I have so many. I've really been struggling with this. Like, I feel like I could just do a bullet point list, but there's so many places that are just doing such a great job of amazing food, amazing safety, and delivery. Like, just everything's great. So, since I have a family, I'm going to go out with my top right now, which is the Sandwich Odyssey. They're doing delivery. They're doing no contact pickup, but they've also added a family dinner pack, which is like... I want to say it's usually 40 bucks or something like that, but it's enough food to feed like five or six people. And it's amazing food and I, and it's delivered. I just love Sandwich Odyssey and I'm just going to keep rolling a little bit, but I also want to shout out to like Simmering Tava. They have great no contact pickup, amazing food, huge volumes of food for what you order. Every restaurant is going above and beyond and I, I feel like it's hard to even find a restaurant that's not doing a good job right now. Yeah, they've all really but pulled together. Those are my two top shout-outs. Uh, the Sandwich Odyssey has been saving my butt at lunch and has been saving my butt at dinner. As I you know, I mentioned, like my business was obviously very busy during all of this. So I, I have the extraordinary opportunity to have extra money to throw into restaurants. So we've even though we generally don't eat out a whole ton, we usually just would we would just usually eat out once a week since we have the resources to do so we've been trying to make a point of eating out three to four times a week or ordering food so that we can we can take the love that our community has given to our business and our our luck and and, and position and be able to put that money and in, into other businesses you know like pumping money back into the local economy so i'm just we're just ordering from different places every week whether we whether we know them or not or like them or not but we're just you know Everybody gets a little bit of the cash. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we've loved doing this segment so much. It's, it's, it's really, I mean, we always used to eat out a lot before this, but making an extra effort to try to choose like something different each week so I can mention it on the show, it's just like another cog turning in my head. <laughs> so uh, Annika, kind of speaking of the different cogs that are turning and the different things we try to order each week, what uh, what's your pick? I'm going to go with the cocktail that I got from Twin Sisters. I didn't know that there were cocktails at Twin Sisters until Maria was like, we're talking about where to go to celebrate the last day of school. And we went to Twin Sisters because I wanted a cocktail, but I also wanted something with a nice big outdoor area. And Twin Sisters, they, they made the cut. I got like a, what was it, Maria? It was supposed to be like a tropical drink. It should have like pineapple in it and yeah, maybe there's like a specific or something like that. It's a, oh, it was a, supposed to be like a spin on a pina colada. Oh I think. yeah, I thought yeah. I thought it looked really tasty. I didn't try it because that would have been germy. But um, <laughs> if if you if you ever feel guilty about going to a brewery and ordering a cocktail, because I did, 
And then we did it, and it was fine, and nobody looked at us funny. So they do have that giant outdoor space, and I'd recommend checking it out. Especially if you have, like, a kid or a dog. I don't know. Seems like there were lots of kids and dogs there. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, thanks, Twin Sisters. Um, My pick is the Lemon Sage Cider Margarita Slushy that I had at Bellingham Cider Company. I know, it's a lot of words. But it's worth it. It had, it was so tasty. It was so fun. It was like regular cider on the top with like a slushy float. And all the flavors are really complimentary. It's like hard to describe. But it was amazing. And um, I've never had anything like it before. So I was super into it. And I suggest going and checking out all the fun craft uh, cider cocktails that they have at Bellingham Cider Company right now. Just thank you so much for, for doing this. Alex, we had such a fun time talking to you learning about your it's been a blast learning about your history learning about coffee and uh we're just so grateful that you took the time to do this interview with us yes oh i had fun thank you for letting me be on here perfect (laughs) we're flattered (laughs) we also want to say thanks to jeff bigley for doing our music thank you annika for doing our editing and thank you all of our lovely listeners out there we're gonna leave you with a big stay healthy bellingham a little more subdued maria please stay healthy